Officially, uh, I was uh, supposed to introduce myself, being that uh, I'm uh, not the usual, but uh, I think the introduction will go uh, left for someone else. Um, The sponsorship of this year is officially anonymous, but the sponsorship of the CD is um, by uh, Rabbi Mr. Uh, Morty Weiss for the for the growth of uh, Jewish education. Um, I want to maybe give a general background um, and as well as something more concrete and uh, certain direction to a age-old question, an age-old Jewish question. Um, I think one of the more fundamental aspects of us Jews is that we are wanderers. It's fundamental because it's something that was set out right from the beginning of our nationhood, so to speak, when uh, God reveals himself to Avram by the Brisbane Hapsarim, by the treaty made between the parts, and he describes the future of the Jewish people, that they're going to be exiled, and they're going to be in a land that's not theirs, and there's going to be, you know, hardship, and so on. Then eventually they'll be redeemed, and gives him basically a whole rundown of Jewish history. The Pesach is very striking. It says, Ki geri, he is Aracha, that your, your, your nation will be a nation of wanderer, wanderers, people who will be wandering around, not situated at home, not located in one place. And Jewish history attests to this that we are wanderers. We do not have a specific home. And even when we did have our home, whether it be at the times of the Beis Amigdosh, in the, the, the 400 years or so that it stood, the first 400 years and the 410 years and the second 420 years, there was a lot of hardships even then. In the second period, we did not have our own, uh, our own uh, sovereignty for most of it. And um, we see that the majority of our existence has definitely been in a state of golos, in a state of exile, away from our home. So why? What's the significance of us being in this state? What's the reason for this, this, this wandering, this, this unsettledness, this constant moving and going and traveling? 
this obviously is very much connected to what we are currently um, focusing on in the three weeks. Our, our, the, the, the general idea of the three weeks is the morning of the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, starting from Shiva Asabetamuz is when they they broke through and got into the city. And then they pillaged for three weeks to the conclusion, the culmination of the burning of the base of Migdash on Tisha B'av. So we're mourning these three weeks the destruction of the two base Amigdash that we had. And again, the question becomes even stronger. You were in Golis as a result of it. So why? What's the significance? What's the necessity? What is the message? What's the purpose? And obviously this is connected to this week's Parsha because we know that we have a double Parsha this week, Matis Masay. And the obvious theme of Masay is all about our journeys, our journeys in the Midbar, in the desert, going from place to place, the 42 journeys as it's listed there in the, in the Torah. And even Matis has to do with the idea of journeys, as we'll ta- talk about a little later, so again, the question is, what's the significance of the journey? And why does the Torah mention it? The Torah lists destination after destination, which seems to be odd and strange. So there's an interesting idea that we could begin with, and a very significant idea, which is something which um, is brought down by Rabbeinu Bechaya. Rabbeinu Bechaya is um, a uh, 1200, 1300th, uh, one of the Rishonim, earlier commentators on the Torah. Um, there was actually two Rabbeinu Bechayas. There was the famous Rabbeinu Bechayim in Pegoida, which lived much earlier, the famous Choyves Halabavus, the deities of the heart. That is very, very familiar and uh, famous. And others, this is a later Rabbeinu Bechaya. And in every single Parsha, he has a little introduction to the Parsha. And to the introduction to Parshas Masse, he says something very interesting. He usually quotes a pasuk from Mishlei, Shleim Melech's Mishlei. And there the pasuk says that it describes the idea of acquiring wisdom. And he says that the Shleim Melech is describing to his son that he should acquire, he should acquire wisdom is the first thing he should acquire as wisdom is the foundation. And what is the wisdom? Obviously, the wisdom refers to the wisdom of Torah. And Rabbeinu B'chayi explains what's the significance of having the wisdom of Torah as my first acquisition. Why do I need to acquire Torah first? And he explains that the significance of acquiring Torah first gives us our direction, our focus, our paradigm, our perspective, our focus in how we think, how, what our attitude is towards life, towards knowledge, towards any information that will come in the future. And that is when we have the eyes of the Torah, when we see things through the eyes of the Torah, automatically we, become, we are affected in a way of thinking, the way we observe things, the way we take in information, all through that prism, so to speak, the eyes of the Torah. Versus if someone doesn't have Torah as their beginning point, so what ends up happening is they become more skeptical or they become you know, more, uh, more into their own belief system, let's put it in that terms. And we could say we see it today in the Western civilization, in the Western culture, that you know, today they uh, nearly cut off half of our brain where our focus is not about the metaphysical and not about the spiritual, and it's more about the very empirical and concrete. And therefore, since the world is viewed in that prism, everything has to be, so to speak, viewed through the eyes of science. If something like a miracle occurs, it has to be right away explained away that it's not a miracle. So today they'll explain that the ten plagues in Egypt are actually a natural occurrence that took place. Maybe not, uh, not something that took place every day, but something which is natural. It could happen, and therefore it happened then. As well as any other miracle that comes across, it's automatically labeled as not a miracle, just an unusual event, but has laws of nature that explain it. And therefore, living in that world as we do live today, it could be a very, very difficult challenge. It could be a challenge to believe. So that's why Rabbi Machai says there's a necessity to have the prism of Torah at the beginning, the Knei Chochmah, as the Pesach says, to acquire wisdom. 
And he explains that's the significance of why the Torah tells us about the travels, of why the Torah has to emphasize the travels that the Jews took, had in the Midbar. And for this he brings the Rambam in Mer Nevuchim, who lived in the 1100s. He wrote a very famous book called Mer Nevuchim, besides the other famous books he wrote, but the Mer Nevuchim was a book he wrote specifically to explain from a logical point of view of Jewish Judaism, Jewish metaphysics, Jewish theology and, 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 and philosophy, based on a lot of, mainly based on Aristotelian principles. And he discusses there, in the third book, he discusses there the significance of why does it say the travels, the Masay, the travels of the Jews in the Midbar, and he says, so that people in the future shouldn't come along and say, well, what's the big deal that the Jews went through the desert? What's the significance of this? You know, they, you know, today you go through a desert. Is it such a big deal? You know, every, every, you know, you have a helicopter that can pick you up and take you to a city. Um, you know, there's very few places that are completely isolated from, from human inhabit, habitation that you can't find, you know, any source of, 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 of any, any uh, human resources. And, and, and therefore, he says, uh, they probably were like one of those small deserts. You know, talking about the Arabian desert or the, the Egyptian uh, desert, the Sinai desert, I should say. It's not so far from, you know, high, you know uh, populations and, and, and even agriculture. They could have planted and so on and so forth. So the Torah goes through step by step showing how every single destination was miraculous in their survival that if you look at it from a purely logical, natural, scientific point of view, they shouldn't have survived. There was no food. There was no water. There was no human resources. There was no helicopters that could pick you up and you know, take you to a hospital if you got injured and so on and so forth. They survived because God wanted them to survive. And therefore, through seeing the miracle in the Torah, through seeing how the Torah describes how their survival was miraculous, that is what gave, was what gives the power for the future to see how our survival is a miraculous event, and that it's not just an odd occurrence. And what's very significant about this idea is that when we think about Jewish survival as, as, a, as a matter of itself, this is one of the more perplexing issues, so to speak, that the non-Jewish world cannot really grapple with. If you're a sociologist, if you're an anthropologist, you want to make sense of the world's existence and the different cultures that have come and gone. The Jews are an anomaly. The Jews don't make any sense. The fact that we're still surviving after the persecutions, after the destructions, and so on and so forth, yet we still survive, it does not make sense. But there are the group today, or those today, that will try to explain it logically and rationally. Even us ourselves, unfortunately, at times we try to explain it away rationally because we need to. In order to make sense of things, we have to try to make sense of it with a logical, scientific twist. So says the Rambam, Rabbeinu Bachai, that's precisely why the Torah lists the destinations in the Midbar to make you aware that it's impossible for the Jews to have survived in, natural, as in, in a natural manner. This is absolutely miraculous. And the significance of this is, is as the Ramban explains on a parsha earlier, where it describes the travels of the Jews in a different context. It says that the Jews traveled al-pi Hashem. It says al-pi Hashem yisu, al-pi Hashem yachanu, that based on the word of God they traveled, based on the, world of, the word of God they encamped. He explains there that the significance of that is, is that even after we are, so to speak, living within the natural flow of, of, of human nature, meaning today in America, there's no great secret to our survival. Thank God there, there's no persecutors, at least not overt persecution. There's no one out there to kill us. At least, you know, there's governments that could protect us. Yes, there are people out to kill us, but there's many people out there. Those same people are out to kill a lot of people. But the point is we're, in a, we're probably in the best position we've ever been throughout history. Logically, it makes sense why we survive. But says the Ramban, because we experienced in the Midbar a miraculous state of existence, that, so to speak, 
pervades our entire existence and it shows and it emphasizes that even when it seems like we're living within the laws of nature, even when it seems like our existence is natural and, and, and very much within the laws of nature, it's really a miraculous occurrence. In other words, again, this Rabbeinu Bachai idea that when it comes through the Knei Chochmah, the Knei Torah, when it comes to the original understanding that everything is seen through the, eyes, through the eyes of Torah, through the prism of Torah, then we see how really our existence is something which is supernatural. What is the significance of this point? How does that connect to what we're trying to discuss here? Well, the point seems to be obvious. The reason why we mention our travels, and even on a step deeper, the reason why we are the wandering Jews is to emphasize this miraculous nature, is to emphasize the fact that there is a nature or there is an existence in this world which is miraculous, which testifies to a God, not just a God that created the world, but a God that actually is constantly influencing the world. And that's the beginning of our existence. What does that mean that there's not only a God that created the world, but there's a God that actually is affecting in this world, is having an effect in this world, and which is what we're representing, which is the idea of a miracle, is this basic idea of <clears throat> do we look at the world as a laws, set of laws, a set of laws of nature that God just put into place, and then God said, bye-bye, I'll see you, you know, in 6,000 years? Or does God actually affect change and is constantly creating the world, as Chassidus explains? But even not from the perspective of a constant creation, does God constantly have a say in what's going on in the world? There's some that wanted to believe and still believe, yeah, there's a creator. God created the world. What's the big, what's the big deal to believe in that? Everything has a cause and effect. There must be a creation. There must be a God that, create, that created. But does he really have a, a, does he play a role even today? Ah, he left the world. God left the world. God is not here. Us, as Jews, believe very strongly in the, in the concept called Hashkocha Pratis, that God actually affects and constantly is affecting the nature of the world and constantly having a say in what's going on and controlling and directing what's going on in this world. That's the idea of Hashkocha Pratis. But where do you see precisely God's hashkocha pratis? It's through us, it's through the Jewish people. We're through the wandering of the Jewish people. The fact that our existence is supernatural, is miraculous, the fact that it goes against the laws of nature emphasizes that there must be a God that is affecting this constantly. Because as we know, if the nature is one way and there's something fighting against the nature and existing, that must mean there's some constant force fighting against it. As we know, when, they split, when the Yamsa split, so then it says in the Pasuk that there had to be a wind the entire night keeping the water up as a wall, because otherwise the water would have gushed back down and drowned the Jews, as it did over the Egyptians. In order to keep something which is against nature, which is against the rules of nature, there constantly has to be a force fighting against it, so to speak. And that's a miracle in general. Us as Jews represent a, consist, a constant state of miracle. The fact that we survive, the fact that we are surviving. As, uh, you know, they have different, uh, this, who exactly said it, some say it was Voltaire, some say it was someone else, that um, uh, when he was asked, some say it was Pascal, whatever, they were asked, how do you prove the existence of a God that performs miracles and these were people that were already beginning in the Lighten movement where they were running away from the ideas of God. So they said, it's the Jews. We represent the miraculous nature. Or as, uh, as uh, others have written about this, this, this phenomenon of the Jewish people that we survive. So what we see over here is, is that we can answer our question on a very, very basic idea. We represent God's miraculous force in nature. And therefore, we're wanderers. Because as a wanderer, it means we don't have a place. We don't have any real place to call home. As, as, and as a result, how do we survive? Where, where, where are we getting our survival from? If we can't hold together as a nation, we're constantly being thrown around from place to place, there must be some sort of greater power that's keeping us and allowing us to survive. So this idea 
is a very, very powerful idea. It's an idea that represents not only the fact that we represent something special in this world, we're the chosen nation, let's use those words, but on a greater level, it represents a constant effect that we're having on this, in this world. It's a constant acknowledgement that we, as Jews, represent God's infinite or miraculous power in this world. The idea of Shabbos, when we say on Shabbos, that God completed the heaven and the earth in, in six days and he rested on the seventh day. So the reason why we say that is, is because we're testifying to God's to God's creation and God's power of creation. In fact, according to halacha, when we say it, we're supposed to say it together, at least with two people, because there has to be two witnesses in order to establish something as fact in Jewish law. And there's many things that us Jews represent as being the aidim, being the proof, being, 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 the, 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 being the testimony of God's infinite, miraculous force in nature. But this is not... This doesn't suffice for, for what we're dealing with. That's all very nice. God would like to make us you know, be representative of his infinite power. But why do we have to suffer on account? Or if, even if we're not suffering, what exactly is that a, mess, a, a, a mission for us? So I'm just a pawn and I'm going to be put from place to place? I don't have any specific mission, so why do I exist? Why did God put me specifically in this world? There's many other people that represent God's. Why do they need to be 6, 7, 8, 10, 13, 14 million Jews, Cain Yerbu? In fact, the smaller the better. Maybe there should be only 2 million, and they could still survive, even though we are the least amongst nations. But still, if it's all about just representing God's miraculous nature and all that, it doesn't explain my purpose of existence. It doesn't explain why I'm wandering. It doesn't explain why I'm in exile. And even when we look into the idea that we described about the, this miraculous nature, this hashkocha prata, seeing how God's energy is in this world, it also asks the question, so what? What's the significance of that? God needs to prove himself to the nations of the world. Hey, I'm here. Like, what, what's, why is that significant? Why is that accomplishing anything? God needs to prove himself. He has like an inferiority complex, and he has to prove himself to people around him that he exists and that he has a miraculous nature. What are we doing here? Now, interestingly, on a side point, but connected is this idea of Hashkacha Pratis is a very powerful idea because Hashkacha Pratis means that God uses us as a channel to affect something in this world. Now, if we're being used as a channel to, to, to affect something in this world, it means that we're very, very close to God. We have a very, very... Um, uh, we're, 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 we're God's, you know, hand, foot. We're God's, we're God's, we're God's you know, Caleb. So what that basically means is that we're just a tool for God to use the way he wants. That means we are completely, in the words of Chassidus, completely bottled, completely nullified to God. We could be used whatever way, any way, way God wants us to be used. But yet at the same time, we have a tremendous bechira. We have a tremendous freedom of choice to do the good, to do the proper, or not to do the proper. The Pesach says, God gives us a choice. God says we have freedom of choice. So one second, God's Hashkocha versus God's Bechira, right? This is one of the bigger questions that has been bothering Jewish philosophers for the past uh, two, three thousand years. We're not going to get into that point. But what we see here is very powerful, that we being the closer you are to God, means that at the same, one at the same time you have a greater power of freedom of choice, yet you're also the greatest, you're the most nullified to God. And the Rambam actually points this out, also in the Rambam's Merinavuchem and in his letter, famous Agarist Chiyas HaMesim, when the Jews were being persecuted by the Muslims and the, to convert, um, the Rambam says how the, re, the proof of our, our, our significance, the fact that we're God's chosen nation, is the fact that we have God's divine intervention in every aspect of our life, the fact that we do survive. And he says that Ashkocha Pratis means that the closer one is to God, that's where he gives through off his Ashkocha Pratis. And the idea based on Chassidus explains the idea even deeper that 
In order for light to shine, there has to be a proper conduit for the light to shine through. If you're going to take a mirror and shine it on the, uh, you're going to shine a light on a mirror, so there's a good chance that the light will refract and you know come back, but it's not going to go any further. It's just going to be where you shined it, where, where the light is being shone, and just stay right there. But if you have a crystal, then the light shines through the crystal and goes further. It actually could spread further light. So the more of its being coarse, the more physical, so to speak, therefore the less its capabilities of spreading and becoming a greater light versus the more, the more simple, the more pure, then the more power to actually disperse the light. And us Jewish people have that power. Well, okay, we'll leave that point for a sign. It represents our true, exi- our true existence, but we'll, t- we'll leave that point for a moment. So what do we have here? What we have over here is that we've seen that there is a certain significance of our you know, wandering element. The fact that we are constant, you know, we're like nomads. We, we, were, we, we, know, we pitch tent in, 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 Russia, in, in, in Germany, and then we pitch tent in, in France, and then we've pitched tent in Poland, and then we've pitched tent in, in Russia, and then we, now we're pitching tent in America. We're constantly pitching our tent in different places throughout the world, but who are we? Where are we? We're a nation without a place. I'm not saying this is not obviously to, exclu- to take away from the fact that we have the land of Israel on our hands today, but we're still not home. So then the question is again, so then why? What are we trying to prove? What is our, what's the significance here? So to try to keep this idea as brief as possible, <clears throat> we have to really go back to a very crucial point we have to look at the fact of why did the soul come into the body? You know, we're asking the question, why are we wandering from place to place? Why is the soul wandering from up there in its most sublime, you know, receiving God's light, being closest to God, life is great, life is bliss, you know, very, the, 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 the peace and comfort over there is great. And all of a sudden, you take that little soul and say, hey, you're going to be thrown right down there. You're going to go straight into that hole, and you're going to have to suffer or work or whatever else, they can, all the challenges of life, and you're not going to see any of these goodies anymore. Why? What's the significance of that? What's the purpose in that? And not only that, when the soul actually comes down here and it's given a mission... Is there any significance given to the soul? Most of us give more significance to our physical body than the soul. So then what's the point? Is the point the soul or is the point the body? So if the soul is coming down for its own destination, for its own journey, then why is it going into a body which is going to conceal its journey and, so to speak, take away its significance? So why does the soul come down here to begin with? So there's a classic idea that Chassidus describes, which is called the Yerida Litzer Chaliyah element, which means that a descent, a coming down, is always for an ultimate elevation. And only through the descent, it's only through the going down, is where there could be the Aliyah, where there could be this, this elevation, this ascent later, this tremendous ascent later. What does this mean? What does this idea mean, Yerida Litzer Chaliyah? What are we talking about? What are we trying to, what, what, what are we getting at? So we could explain it on two levels. You read the Litzarach Ali, it could be understood from two different points of view. We'll give two different examples for it. We have, for example, a logical idea. You're going to take, you know, an idea in your mind you know, someone's going to spin at you, uh, throw at you some sort of, you know, uh, nice tidbit, logical tidbit, something to think about. And you're trying to come to the truth of that statement. How are you going to go about trying to getting to the conclusion to the truth of that statement? So usually the way, the way process of logic works is that you start asking questions. And the more you ask, the more complex the idea becomes, the more fragmented the idea becomes. 
it almost becomes an, a, a distant idea from the original idea because it's become so fragmented and so, so broken down to the point that the connection between the beginning stage and the end stage doesn't seem clear. You literally could become confused in the idea itself. Not only that, there's times where you actually throw in contradictions. You make juxtapositions. You start throwing in references from other places. And all of a sudden, you have this wide array of pieces of information, a whole bunch of variables, a whole bunch of different ideas coming to emerging together. And you're swimming in this ocean of ideas and concepts, and you're completely lost. You're diving in, trying to make sense of all the pieces of information. But eventually, through working out the details, what happens? The original idea becomes not only clear, but has actually been advanced on a higher level. The concept has been refined on a higher level. Now the concept is no more the same concept, per se, the way it was before. It has all its richness. It has all its glory. It has all its significance, and it has all its meaning. It has the truth. The true intent of the idea has become clear. So going through it in a logical process, what you do is you start off jumping in, going down, being confused. But only through that do you actually come to a greater state of clarity. This works with any idea, any logical idea. So that's one form of Yerid L'Tzarech Aliyah. There could be another form of Yerid L'Tzarech Aliyah. The other form of Yerid L'Tzarech Aliyah is, let's say, for example, God forbid someone goes through a tragedy. So, or, you know, they suffer from depression. So what happens is, is that, you know, initially it looks very bad. It's very difficult. How do you manage? How do you survive in this type of situation? God forbid a person is, you know, suffering from a physical ailment. It could be very, very, very debilitating, and therefore it could really disrupt a person's life, not just physically, but mentally. During that process, it could be very, very difficult. But then after that process, when we get over it, there seems to be a certain light that has clicked, a certain recognition, a certain idea, a certain new lease on life even, a certain, a certain elevation that we didn't have before. How many people have gone through tragedies that afterwards they could explain to you how or show you how they've actually enhanced their life? And I'm not just talking about a silver lining where they find something significantly good, you know, and they find something, but they actually could show you how to behold describes that really there's a benefit in all the dark and, and depressive state that I live in. It's, it's dark, it's hard, it's very difficult, but it's the Yisraina Ormana Choshech. It's from when there's very, very, very little light or no light, and all of a sudden it's pitch black till the point where the light comes on again. It's a whole different light. The person who escapes from jail after being in darkness for the past seven years, eight years, he has a whole different perspective of what, it, what the sun means, and he has a whole different perspective of what life means. So we see there are two forms of Yerid Litzar there's one which we would call a natural process. One which you would say is taking something which has within it a full depth, a full innate depth, and you're trying to get to the core of it, trying to break your way through. So you're initiating a process of trying to understand the core of this idea. That's one form of Yerid L'Sarech But then there's a much more unwilling, so to speak, you're being schlepped along type of where it's not innate within it, it's not innate within you it's not something which is part of your being it's something added to your being where you're now, so to speak, have to work with it and, and, and bring, it, bring it onto a greater uh, show how, what its real significance is and that Yerid is a much harder Yerid but as we can see, we'll see in a moment actually could be much greater than the first form of Yerid L'Tzarech Another example of Yerid L'Tzarech for the first way, we'll just give maybe better oisies, better words for it, is when a teacher explains something to a student. When a teacher learns something themselves, that a teacher understands the idea in their own mind, however clear it is, however much that concept is shines in the brain of the intelligence of the teacher, once he goes down and has to break it down to a child or to a student that's not on his capacity, on his level of intelligence, it automatically makes the idea much clearer. 
it automatically light, uh, it gives greater insight into the teacher what of the, this idea that he's, being, he's teaching. And this we all experience regardless of what type of uh, form of teaching we've done, whether we've explained a, a deep uh, philosophical concept or we just explained a very simple book to a child or to someone that was not as uh, capable as we are, and we had to explain it, and when we explain it, it automatically enhances our own understanding of this idea. So through the going down, through the Yerida, through having to break it down to a child, we can understand this idea much greater. So we have these two forms of Yerida L'Tzara Chalia. What, how could we conceptualize the two forms of Yerid L'Tzara Chalia? So I would, would want to say that there's a difference between the two is the question of how do we look at perfection. If the soul came down into this world to be perfected, if the world needs to be perfected, which is a general theme that we've, which Chassidus describes to us, that the world needs to be elevated. The world needs to be refined. <clears throat> How do I look at perfection? What's the job, so to speak? What's, what, do we look, what's, what is the, the, the idea here? So we can look at perfection in two ways. And I'm going to use words which I hope work. You could call one form of perfection called innate perfection. A state of being which has within it a natural depth or a natural element that needs to be brought out. And through it being brought out, you're saying you're perfecting the thing. So take, for example, a person who is a, uh, an artist and they're painting a human being. So they're going to paint every single detail of the human being. So you're slowly but surely seeing how the talent of the artist is being able to bring out the human body in a much in a very um, in a much beautiful or you know uh, in, in an art uh, in an artistic way that represents his great talent his great power or a musician he uses his and he uses his, his brilliance his 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 his, um, his capabilities his talents and through music and he brings out this beautiful piece of music so he's refined himself he's elevated himself he's been able to nurture that talent that he has so it's an innate talent it's an innate potential which is being brought out and being perfected through the usage and through the, the, the necessities of refining that, that element but then there's a type of perfection which we'll call transformative perfection a transformative perfection means where it's not innate, which is, it's not part of my being. It's not who I, I am based on the potential I was given. It actually is a state of perfection where I break my natural state, and I therefore become unlimited to my state before. And I may be speaking very abstract, but a very practical example for this would be, if we use an example of the artist, you have people that could visualize a piece of a human being, and they could see every detail of the human being. They could pinpoint all the details of the human being very, very well. And they could picture it. They could put it down on a piece of paper. So you could say they perfected what a human being looks like. And that, you could say, has been the art for, you know, for hundreds of years. But then there comes a person that sees the human body in a whole different twist. He comes along and gives you one twist on how the human face, let's say, looks. I'm not an expert in art, but let's say a Picasso, a picture of where you take the human face and you could see it from a different perspective, contorted or whatever it is. And all of a sudden you have a whole new concept of what the human being could be. He has captured something which is not innate within the human being per se, but something which definitely fits within the human being when it's given to it. It works. It's intrinsic, so to speak, to the human existence. These are the two different forms of perfection we're dealing with. And this is the difference between the two types of Yerid L'Tzarech The first type of Yerid L'Tzarech is a concept of where we're refining our natural talent. We're bringing out who we are naturally. The soul is coming into the body and trying to make the body the best it could be. So if you have a talent to play a violin, you're going to go to a teacher, you're going to take the instrument, and you're going to start 
fiddling away. And as a result, you're going to end up bringing out your talent and perfecting your talent. If you're a brilliant scientist, through the more information and the more studies and the more experiments you're going to make, you're going to end up being able to refine the capabilities of a, as being a scientist and so on and so forth. But you never transformed yourself. You've actually stayed in your natural limited state. You've left maybe your, you know, your primitive state and you've advanced to a much more complex state, but it's still within that same limitation of who you are from birth what you were given at birth, and that goes just builds and builds and builds, and you just reveal more and more of it. You haven't changed. You haven't transformed. You haven't become infinite. Then there's a much different type of perfection, as we said, a different type of irid l'tzarech aliyah, where the objective here is not to stay within our physical bounds. It's not to stay within our limitation, but actually break it, transform it, see the world from a whole new light, be able to see an idea that was current beforehand totally um, oblivious, a, a, a new idea, an infinite idea, a limitless idea. When the soul comes into the body, the soul is not just trying to perfect the elements that's already given to the body or the elements that were given to the soul and just bring it out on it in its full glory. It's not even coming just to perfect what's really natural into, in the world. It's actually coming to transform things. It's trying to make things that were till now finite to be infinite, that were till now seen in one view and seen now in a different view. The problem is, the way to get there is a very difficult road. That type of urida, that type of journey is a much, much greater type of breaking, so to speak, a much, much greater type of journey. It's a greater descent. Because if you think about it, if you need to break something, to break something in order to expand it means that you have to really, really hit it hard. And if you don't hit it hard or don't hit it hard enough, it ain't going to break. Our journey throughout our current our state now and the way we've gone through the past 4,000 years is this constant breaking. Is this constant, and we feel the breaking. We don't have to describe our history to know the breaking. But the breaking is the necessity for transforming. And why is that? How does this idea work? What's this notion of breaking that allows for transformation? Well, if you take the idea of this, this logical concept that we said before. So I have two contradictory ideas. Take an example. I never went outside. But someone tells me that the sky is blue. Another person tells me that the sky is gray. So I have to make sense of these two pieces of information. So me, with my brilliant brain, come to a conclusion and say, listen, it's possible for the sky to be blue and gray. Now I have to figure out when is it blue and when is it gray. Right? So I'm going to go through these pieces of information, and I'm going to come to the conclusion, well, it's probably blue during certain times, and it's gray during other times. But I don't know anything else. Then comes another piece of information and say, well, there's weather patterns and... So I could start building up and perfecting, so to speak, my knowledge of the sky. But then there comes a twist. And someone says, you know, in truth, the sky is not blue or gray. Which is the truth. It's not blue or gray. So all of a sudden we're thrown back. What's going on over here? How could it be that the sky is not blue or gray? It's, it's completely counter everything I just learned. It's completely counter to my whole way of thinking. And now I have to live with this whole new reality that's confusing. But then when you think deeper into it, and you get more involved in it, and you realize that you're working, you're trying to make sense, then you can make sense. There's the sky, natural sky. And then there's the way the sun and the, and, and, and the atmosphere and light affects the sky. And all of a sudden I begin to see a whole new world. I see a whole new idea, a whole new concept that previously was totally not understood and therefore there's an element of becoming much greater the, the idea has transformed itself to being a new idea a much greater idea but that's still not the perfection we're talking about because that still was within the boundaries of the sky the sky was, not, was a wrong piece of information to begin with but let's now take our second example our example of the person who had to go through a tragedy God forbid an example of someone who, who had a, a, an episode of depression 
or suffers from bipolar or whatever it is. Such a type of person, there's a constant fight against their nature. There's a constant battle. They're living in this constant state of attack, so to speak. In this constant state of attack, there is, no, there is no state of making sense of anything. I can't rationalize my state of sanity to my state of insanity, my state of happiness to my state of depression. It doesn't make sense to me. So for that, I need to transcend. I need to tap into a much deeper core. I need to reveal a much deeper power and a more intrinsic power, a power that allows me to survive beyond both of these states. It forces me to become something else. It forces me to, to, deep, to dig deeper within myself. The breaking is forcing me to penetrate within myself a much deeper space. And as a result, not only do I survive, but I thrive. That's the journey that the Jews have. That's why we're the wandering people. That's why we've gone through what we've gone through. We need to force a deeper self. We need to bring a deeper self. We need to reveal a deeper self. We mentioned before the idea of the Hashkocha Pratis versus Bechira. We actually could affect this within ourselves, believe it or not. We could bring about this crushing fight, this crushing power that has to break us through our own very actions. Because if we, God forbid, sin, we actually cause and increase our suffering, as the Torah describes. But it's not because that's not what God wanted. That's exactly what God wanted. God designed the world for this. He wanted you to sin on some level. He wanted you to have this challenge in order that if you fall, you'll eventually do tshuva. You ever thought about it? A tzaddik is just keeping the way the world is. It's very nice. It's like you open up a school and you set a whole bunch of rules. And therefore you have a whole bunch of different students that are going to try out the school. If they could comply with the rules, let's say your, your, educate, your level of academic has to be on some level and you know the dress and all that, you'll probably have you know, X amount of students that could work in your school. And if they keep the rules, good. But what happens with those that can't keep the rules? So they break the rules. Now you have an option. Either you close your school down or you expand your school. You change the rules. You open up more. The tzaddik is the person that walks into class and does exactly what he's commanded, what he's expected to do. So he just keeps the natural flow of the world going. He just allows the world to work the way it's supposed to work. He never broke anything. He's never changed anything in the world. He's brought down God's energy. He's allowed the world to exist. He's constantly, yes, miracles. But that miracles was constantly was in the world. He just, like, so to speak, revealed the nature of the miracle. A Russia, through his sinning, actually transforms the world because eventually he'll do tshuva. He'll take the very space that the tzaddik is in and now say, I'm breaking it because I brought an energy that's fighting against. I'm bringing in a power that's much more crushing, that needs a greater breaking. I wanted to eat the cake on Yom Kippur, and I'm not going to eat the cake on Yom Kippur now that I've overcome this challenge. The tzaddik never had that challenge to begin with. So for him, it can't be as crushing, it can't be as transformative as by the Russia. That's why the Gemara says that b'mokim, in the place that about tshuva stands, a tzaddik cannot stand, according to one version of the Gemara. What does it mean he can't stand in that place? Because that space has been transformed by the, by the, by the, by the about tshuva, the tzaddik doesn't relate to that space. It's not on his level. It's not him. He's in the limited space that he's been living for the past whatever amount of years. It's only the about tshuva that came along and transformed that space. He has no relationship to the tzaddik. That's what we're here. We're all bali tshuva. That's why it says when Mashiach comes, even the tzaddik will have to do tshuva. Because we need to be able to transform. We need the breaking. We need this deep penetrating breaking. Yeah, but one could ask the question, so if the journey is about the breaking, so then I could get lost in the journey. And I could give up. I could feel frustrated. It's painful. It's hard. So it's a very nice ideology. I'm breaking myself. But who's going to venture to say, I want to be a bipolar, I want a bipolar God forbid, in order to get to a deeper core of survival if I could? How many people are going to raise their hands? Not many. So what, what's the perspective? What's the attitude? 
So that's why God writes it down in the Torah. Because the Pasuk describes how every single journey that they took was al pi Hashem, was based on God's command. And what's the significance of that? The Shalot tells us something interesting. He says that whenever, based on this Pasuk, he says whenever a person has something happen or is going to happen, he should always say, Im Yirtza Hashem. We say this a thousand times a day. Im Yirtza Hashem. What does it mean, Im Yirtza Hashem, if God wants? What it means is, is that there's a recognition that there's a purpose in every single moment of my life. How many people focus on every moment? Not many. How many people appreciate that every single moment is precious and every moment is breaking and changing and transforming ourselves? If we would think about it very often, we may go crazy, but also it may actually give us a perspective of why we're here. It's like running on a treadmill. If you're aware of what you're trying to do, then the running may be difficult, but eventually you're actually going to get to where you want to go. So the number one state has to be al pi Hashem. We're aware that our purpose and our mission is because God wants us to be here. And this is the way we represent God's mission and the way we transform the world. But a much more deeper point is the realizing. The Gemara describes an interesting, the Gemara asks an interesting question. The Gemara says, when you build something on Shabbos, you want to build a house. You know how to build a house on Shabbos. How do we know? Because we know what anything that was done in the Mishkan the times of the Mesa in the Mishkan is considered a melacha. It's forbidden to do on Shabbos. So where do we find building on Shabbos? They have to build the Mishkan, right? When they camped, they built a Mishkan. But one of the interesting things about the building of, about building on Shabbos, it has to be a permanent building. When they, built, when, the, when they built in the Mishkan, they didn't build it permanently. Eventually it was broken down because they had to travel again. So the Gemara asks, how could you learn from the Mishkan that if you built something permanently on Shabbos, you violated what's called the melacha of Bona, building, when in the Mishkan it wasn't permanent. So the Gemara says, no. Since it was al pi Hashem, since it was on the Word of God, it was permanent. And over here there's a very, very important idea. There's a difference between a goal or trying to reach for something and living within something, creating a relationship with something. We can't look at our journey and our, 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 our struggle as a goal-reaching type of idea, where we're trying to reach something at the end of the day. We can't look at it as, I'm going to go through hell for the next five years because eventually I'm going to be able to reach heaven. That's not the idea, because then you probably won't reach heaven. The focus has to be is that even in what I'm doing now is the ends in itself. It's not just the means, but it's the ends. My very struggle now, somehow, is actually the ends and the purpose. I'm building a relationship. When a person is having building a relationship with a friend, with a spouse, they're not looking at it and thinking, oh, how do I want to be in the next 10 years? I'm willing to go for, through all this in order that in 10 years' time I'll be able to enjoy my wife or enjoy my children or enjoy my friend. That's ridiculous. It's that you appreciate that this very moment that you're living in now is actually building that relationship. It's actually affecting that change, that, that connection. It's bringing that relationship together. It's actually affecting a much deeper, meaningful, more meaningful existence together. I'm not looking for a future. I'm looking for a now. I'm looking for a place here, but a very deep place. And this is only because of the fact that at the end of the day, we're not going to a predestined place. Mashiach, Geula, is not a predestined place. If it's about a goal, if it's something we're reaching, so it's a predestined, already designed place. If I want to go from the California to New York, I know, you know, either I take a plane or I travel. I know where I'm going. I may have never been to New York, but at least I know there's such a place called New York. I may have seen pictures. I may have an idea. That's not what Geula is. Geula is not something which we're just going to a place. We're creating the Geula. In fact, <laughs> the Altareb explains something very interesting. He says... The reason why our state of Golos is so powerful is because we're actually molding the way we're going to be when Mashiach comes. The very way we relate to life now is the way we're going to relate to when Mashiach comes. If we get stuck in this world and believe in the world and the physicality of the world as important, we're going to have a hard time in Elam Haba because that's the way we're going to see the world. 
It's like, for example, this idea of, you know, genetically modifying ourselves. Being able to take our own genome and somehow redesign it and re-effect it in a way that could become something different. When Mashiach comes, everything is already in its place. It's already figured out. Everything is already in its permanent state. We now have the power to change it. And this is, again, this idea, this power of transformation. We don't have something that we're trying to reach. It's not like the Yerid Chalia, which is we're just trying to, stay, a, a perfection that we're trying to, an innate perfection that we're just trying to bring out. We're trying to transform and change. We're trying to change ourselves. We're trying to make ourselves different. We're trying to reveal the truth of something by showing how what we see the world to be today is actually something totally different. And that only goes about, goes about through this journey. So again, if you focus it that it's Al-Pi Hashem, when you see that it's God's mission, when you see it's God's direction, number one. But more importantly, when it's not about a goal. You know, you have certain people that set goals for themselves. They say, you know, I want to be able to go through, I don't know, Tanakh. <clears throat> so now that they finish Tanakh, okay, no, what do I do now? Once you've reached the goal, it's over. Nothing. Or you have people that want to go on a diet, so they're going to lose weight. So after they say, I want to lose 15 pounds, they lost the 15 pounds, okay, what happens now? So now I probably gained back 30. That's the nature, because the goal itself means nothing. It doesn't have any hold. You never broke, changed. But what if the person says, I'm not looking to lose 15 pounds. I'm looking to become a different person. My attitude towards eating, my attitude towards doing life, my attitude towards learning is going to be different. And each moment, each day, the struggle of not eating the food or opening the Tanakh, that itself is the change I'm looking for. It's a whole different attitude. It's tough. It's painful. Go to the gym and start doing push-ups. It's going to be very difficult. But you appreciate that every single push-up you do is actually the significance. It's not a means to an end. It's an ends in itself. And again, that's the only way transformation takes place. We're not just trying to take the genome that's already given to us and just allow it to develop, that the head is going to come here and the feet over here and the heart over here. Everything the way is going to be in its naturally predicted innate order. We're actually trying to change it, remodel it, reform it into a whole different being. And that's the significance of our journey, to reach ultimate perfection, to reach a stage of where we, as our intrinsic being, which is a creation of God, but not just a creation of God, it's the creation, the creation that has the power of Bechira to choose our path, to choose our direction, to choose this course of action, as well as Hashkocha Protis, which allows us to be God's messengers to the world, to transform God's world, to bring out the true existence. It's like God put us here to say, hey, we can manipulate the genes of the world. We can bring out the truth of what the world is all about. And that's our journey. That's our process. That's our core. And this is very much connected to the three weeks, because in the three weeks we've gone through a very, very hard crushing effect. An effect that, const- that throws us into a loop. If we're God's chosen nation, why does he treat us so horribly? Why does we suffer so much? And the truth is we can't answer the question. There's no answer to why we suffer. The Gemara tells us, Hani We can't get into questions of uh, theodicy. We can't, we can't discuss these questions. We don't know. They're not for us to answer. But we definitely have a perspective. We understand something very significant. And that is, is that there's a direction that God wants from us, not just because of the fact that he, so to speak, has a vision for the world. He has a vision for us. He has a vision for us because his perfection is based on our perfection. When we become transformed and thus transform the world with us, he becomes transformed, so to speak. He's seen through the eyes of the Jewish people. We hold God within us, so to speak. Not just so to speak, but really. But in the sense of that we are the means, only through us is it possible for there to be the true, the true revelation of what godliness is, this, this transforming, this breaking uh, process to take place. And going through a process like the three weeks, this, this, this dissidence between God's love, beloved nation, and yet at the same time this, this, this hardship of the three weeks, this breaking, this crushing, is as we said before, it's only through the breaking and the crushing could we reach a much deeper transformative perfection. So what do we have here? What are we looking at? 
So fine, very nice. We just gave a very nice rational explanation to why we're here. And probably most of us heard this idea on some level before. So what am I trying to do now? <clears throat> well, I think one very important message is, and um, obviously we all have to find within ourselves a, 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 a inner calling, so to speak, what we find something significant about ourselves. But one thing which is very important, when we're trying to transform, we can't overlook details. A lot of times we're very, very caught up in the big. I'm going to go to a sheer, or I'm going to get excited and, 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 you know, dive in for four hours. That's the big things. We, we forget about the small things, the little things, the making the ashriyatsa after we came out of the bathroom, so to speak. The little details that we don't take, pay, pay much significant, significance to, the things, as the Mishnah says, things that things that a person crushes with his heel, and he says, ah, what's the significance? But when you're trying to perfect something to a point of transforming it, there can't be one detail that still remains in the same form as it was before. It's impossible for to perfect anything in the world and to perfect ourselves by overlooking details. If you try to understand the truth of a concept by not viewing it from all its angles and seeing all its details, it's impossible for you to actually understand the truth of the idea. If we want to bring out the truth of the world and the truth of why we're here and the truth of existence, that means every moment of every second of every action that we do has to be viewed with, through that prism that I am here to transform the world. It has to be conscious. It can't just be an idea. It has to be... It can't just be... A, an idea that we keep in the realm of ideology, it has to be transformed into a reality. And the reality is only through our conscious mind. It's only through us becoming aware of it by knowing it. And again, it's al-pi Hashem. By having the direction, this is what God chose for us. And God it wants us to be this way. God sees a purpose in this, even though we may not see it fully. But we know it to be true. We have the faith that it's true. And then we use every single moment of every single action that we do and you try to bring out the best and transform it and maybe even the crushing element, the the element of it being something which is difficult to accomplish, something which is hard to accomplish. Not because it's easy, but because it's difficult. The things that we find the hardest to do, that's the things we have to work on the most. But then even the things that we find easy, we should try to transform it. We should try to change it. We try to make it much richer, much fuller. See it from a new light. Bring out the truth that's really behind all of that. Not mincing on details. Not looking over details. Not trying to get away with the easy. But trying to actually work and bring out the true richness of everything. So, Eila Masi B'nei Yisrael, and Matis and Masi are connected to these two ideas, because Matis represents the idea of when we're standing alone as a staff that's disconnected from the tree. The Jews are compared to Matis and to a shevet. A shevet is something which is growing. A Matis is something which is disconnected. So we may sometimes feel that we're disconnected, we're lost in this wilderness of Golos. The Midbar HaUmoy says it's called the, the, the Desert of the Nations. We're going, as we said before, we, we started off in Jerusalem or in Egypt, then we went to Jerusalem, and then we ended up, you know, in, in a dispersed into the Roman Empire, into Germany, and into France, and then into Poland, and into Russia, and back now in America. And where are we headed? Where are we going? We're like a Mata, but yet the Mata. The Mata is yet also a staff. It's very powerful, it's very firm, it's very strong. It's something that gives us support because we appreciate and understand that Al-Pi Hashem Yisov, Al-Pi Hashem Yachnu, that yes, there's a mission, there's an accomplishment, there's a direction, but it's God's mission. It's Imir Hashem. It's something that God designed for us. And then even by the Yachnu, even when we seem to be lost in this world, we're confused, we're like resting, not sure where to go, we always realize it's Al-Pi Hashem. It's a direction and a cause and a purpose. God wants me to maybe feel stagnant because through that stagnation I may actually reach a much deeper core, a much more greater, realer core. But that's only going to be more real core. That's only going to be, but that's only going to be through my own actions. So, what are we left with? We're left with a mission. How do we accomplish the mission? By being cognitive by being cognizant of the mission, by appreciating, being conscious of the mission, by appreciating what the mission is. And as a result, we don't take for granted any detail. We don't take for granted any moment. We therefore utilize every moment for what it's supposed to be. And we should be zeichet that these days, which is the three weeks, that it shouldn't just be that these days are not going to be days of mourning, but as we say, the Pesach says they're going to be transformed. 
the days are not going to be just days of regular Halloween. They're going to be transformed to, ha- to, to special days, joyous days, because again, that is the ultimate point. We're bringing out the, from the sorrow, from the mourning, into a state of happiness, of pleasure, of joy. That's what we want to reach. That's what our accomplishment is. And that's what we mean by Yehovah, you may be able to may it happen right now.